This is Ethan Gao, and you're listening to The First Deal Show. Welcome to The First Deal Show with your host, Caroline with a K. On this show, we're talking about investors' first investment property. Join me for a trip down memory lane as we hear the good, bad, and ugly of that first deal. Toot, your host here, Caroline with a K, with a mid, no, not Midwestern, you're a Southerner. You're a Southern, well, I don't know, you did, you went to school in, in the state, like up here up north, so I'm not really sure where exactly you originated from, Ethan, but we're just going to go with you're a Southerner now. Um, uh, Texans and... don't necessarily like that. We like to consider ourselves Texans and not anything else. Oh, yeah, the state where everything's bigger and better, right? Yes, bigger, fatter, more guns. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, Texan. You guys, you are all proud to be from Texas. I've never met a Texan who's not proud to be from there. So my apologies. You're not a Southerner. You're a Texan. Um, okay. So welcome to the show. Ethan is a attorney still practicing, key principal, loan guarantor, gap lender, husband, and father. So thank you so much, Ethan, for making the time to come on the show. Thank you for having me. Claro. So we always start the show the same way um, with the Kiss Me segment. So to warm you up and kind of get you ready for the blast from the past for you to talk about your first deal ever, we're going to ask you some questions so that the audience, also known as the 402, can get to know you a little bit better. The first question, as always, was what was the first album you purchased? Album that I purchased? Uh, I nev- I've never purchased any albums. Uh, I went to college. No uh, I'm not super into music, and then uh, this, uh, you know, th- this is neither true nor untrue. But I went to college during the era of Napster, so people did not really purchase stuff that much from Columbia House anymore. Oh, gotcha. Well, okay, that's fair. But you, like, as a kid, you never bought. No, I, well, I was never super into music. I bought like I think I bought some video games, but I, I wasn't buying cds or anything and then columbia house would always send the magazines that i throw them in the garbage (laughs) you know what's funny i actually i know what that is because somebody else that was on the show talked about how she would pay the penny to buy the cd and then wouldn't buy anything else right because they try to like scam you or i don't know try to get you to pay more money to buy all the cds that's right yeah i'm guessing it was probably around you know five to ten years kind of ahead of your time okay yeah Yeah. um cool and so the next question is what was the biggest challenge that held you back from investing in real estate so i didn't grow up in a real estate family nor an entrepreneurial family so my parents are stereotypical chinese immigrants from the early uh, late 80s early 90s Uh, i was born in china and i moved to the u.s with my parents when i was six and a half i didn't speak any english i didn't know my alphabet i had to go through esl English as a okay. second language. And yeah, that's fair. Thank you for clarifying that because I didn't even, I know what that is because I'm a teacher, but most people probably are not familiar if they've never, if they didn't have to go through it. Um, so did your parents move to Texas right away? They did. So my dad, um, oh. he served as an interpreter for a professor when the professor from the U.S. went to my dad's town for some reason. And then the guy just said, hey, you want to get a degree in the U.S.? And my dad said, why not? 
So we moved to Commerce, Texas originally. My dad came in, I think, 1989. He did a semester or a year at East Texas State University, which is now a part of Texas A&M. It was a very small town, Commerce, Texas. Uh, we moved there. It was a very stereotypical town with like one Chinese restaurant and one oh, stoplight. Wow. And my parents worked at the Chinese restaurant when they were students, so oh. stereotypical. And then that professor got a job at Baylor University. Um, and so we mm -hmm. moved to Waco, Texas uh, pretty quickly thereafter. So I went to uh, first grade through uh, sixth grade in Waco, Texas. And uh, I, I was in third grade in 1993 and Waco was famous for the, I guess, Waco incident where the FBI and ATF uh, raided a compound of uh, religious fanatics and basically burned them all to death. Oh, wow. I did not. I've heard, That's why Waco sounds familiar. I'm like, that name sounds so it's, it's been a while. Now it's more known for Baylor University. Baylor University has gotten much bigger and better and it's better at sports now. Okay. So where um, in China is your family? originally from we're from northeastern china so shenyang in liaoning province which is kind of between uh, parts of russia and north korea okay gotcha yeah interesting my grandfather was from around that area i think oh really okay um, great yeah um yeah so we also so we're kind of like the texans of china in a way um we're uh, we're called dongbei ren so we're not pure yeah. northerners so we don't just say we're from the northern China. Um, if you look at the specific history and kind of map, um, it was part of it, it was the originate, you know, the, originally the uh, Jurchen peoples came from that area. There's quite a lot of mixture among Mongols, Koreans and Jurchens. And then a couple of times in history, they came down and defeated ethnic Han Chinese dynasties and set up their own, the latest one being the Qing dynasty. And then kind of as a bulwark against Russia, they have started allowing uh, ethnic Han Chinese to go into those areas uh, in the 1800s because uh, it was not that populated and they were afraid of Russians taking over. Mm. Wow, look at that. And I'm learning about China too now. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so... We're, we're a little bit distinct because you know we didn't become part of China proper for a while, you know, t right. toward the end of, uh, toward the end. Yeah, because they want to claim power over all the territory and be bigger and better. Yep. Well, I mean, like Qing Dynasty is actually the, the highest, uh, the largest uh, territorial, uh, I think, claim that China's ever had. So it included all of Mongolia oh. and some other parts that no longer are part of China. Oh, wow. And so what would you say? Um, and so, okay, that was all related to the question of why, what kept you, or what was the biggest challenge from investing in real estate is that you're an immigrant, your parents not come from real estate, and that you did not come from an entrepreneurial background, but you still got into it. So that is the point here, people, is that anyone can do it. Um, and so what is something new that you learned or did during the pandemic that others might not know about you? Uh, so during the pandemic, I got into multifamily investing. So I started out like most folks in single family. I actually did about 400 okay. single family deals before I did multifamily and commercial. And uh, as they say, multifamily and commercial is significantly more scalable than single family. 
So, um, mm -hmm. you know, one of my friends started talking to me about that and started talking to me about the concept of being a loan guarantor or a key principle, which maybe I'll just yeah. kind of talk about right here so people might know what it is. So um, in a standard multifamily syndication, let's say you and I were buying an apartment building uh, for $15 million, we'd borrow around $10 million and we'd raise, you know, $5 million from our friends, family, uh, other people that we know. Uh, the way that these loans work is they're typically non-recourse loans. So that means even though we have to personally guarantee the loan, the bank doesn't really uh, sue us for any deficiencies. You know, if we don't pay back the loan, they really only sue us if we've done what's called bad, uh, bad boy carve outs. So bad actor things. So fraud, non-compliance with certain things, et cetera, et cetera. So the way these loans work is um, the lender or the broker. Wait, wait, yeah. wait, but how would they know if you did a bad boy? Like So so first of all, um, if, if you weren't able to pay back the loan, then the lender is going to start investigating into what in the world happened, right? And then they, they would the start money. auditing yeah. stuff and looking into, you know, if we just kind of hit 2008, so a lot of people had a very good excuse, you know, from 2008 to 2010, like, like quite a lot, mm -hmm. quite a few real estate investors did re really, really poorly and had to give properties mm -hmm. back. But that usually didn't count as a real black mark against them because everybody suffered from that. But let's say you and I are just really dumb and uh, we're really bad people. We might have just yeah. stolen money and stuff, in which case the lender will sue us. They'll discover it. They'll sue us force us into bankruptcy and potentially try to put us in jail if we did really bad stuff. Oh, wow. But okay, we're not doing that. Got it. So yeah, so um, yeah, no. yeah. So the way that the loans get underwritten, one of the one of the criterion is uh, you and I as the lead sponsors of the deal, we have to collectively have net worth that exceeds the loan amount. So if your net worth is 5 million and my net worth is 5 million, uh, great, we have made it. Uh, we check that box, uh, we can move on to the next requirement. The next requirement is uh, you have to have liquidity that's equal to 10% of the loan. So that means you and I have to have $1 million of cash, stocks, you know, what else, life insurance, something that's uh, provable and tangible that the lenders can see that you can print a statement from or log into account and show them. So this is where a lot of real estate investors have some trouble. Real estate investors in general don't carry a lot of liquidity. They like real estate and they typically only like real estate, so they don't really like uh, life insurance or or stocks or bonds. So they really just have real estate and a little bit of cash. So uh, a lot of, you know, high net worth real estate investors will not be able to meet this uh, liquidity requirement. So I come in and I help teams meet either or or both. So I usually keep a very high percentage of my net worth liquid. Uh, it's in my life insurance policies that I have a line of credit against. And then I just have, you know, reasonably high net worth. So I get brought in to teams that are missing that extra liquidity and net worth. And then uh, I joined the team, I signed the loan, and then I get a piece of the, the deal, you know, a piece of the general partnership. So um, I started doing that. Uh, and I've done several of these already. And I'm always looking for more, more potential opportunities. Yeah, that's great. Um, and that's an easy way. So 402, if you're paying attention, right, if you've already if you don't want to do all the other legwork of finding the property underwrite, I mean, you still have to underwrite the deal if you're going to be a KP. But, um, you know, the, the harder stuff of managing being an asset manager and, you know, dealing with the property management, then this is another avenue for you to get involved in multifamily real estate. But we'll get into the nuts and bolts of that a little bit later. And finally, what is your favorite quote? My favorite quote, uh, I think Marcus Aurelius had a good one where uh, 
it wasn't actually nobody actually knows if he said it or not but it's attributed to him which is something uh, i'm going to paraphrase i don't know exactly it's something like you know if if uh if if there is a god then uh and uh you're not a believer but you lived your life in a virtuous way then uh, if god mm -hmm. is just he'll let you into heaven and then if there is no god you should have still have lived your life in a virtuous way so that you know to be a good person something like that yeah now it's attributed that's to awesome. him I, I don't actually know if he actually said it okay that's fair um cool so with all that being said we've already established that you are based in texas are you still in waco texas i live in houston texas so um after uh, waco texas i moved to so my parents graduated from baylor in 1996, we moved to Toledo, Ohio. And uh, interesting story here, uh, I was in sixth grade when we moved. That is middle mm -hmm. school in Texas. And uh, in Ohio, that I don't actually know if it's all of Ohio, but in where I moved to in Ohio, that was uh, elementary school. So my parents mm -hmm. said, uh, there's no way we're sending you back to elementary school. So why don't you just skip a grade and become a seventh grader? So this was back in 1996 what? when um, you know schools weren't nearly as uh, strict and stuff. So I think I just had a meeting at the principal. The principal looked at my grades. You know, obviously I had good grades because I'm a Chinese immigrant. And they were like, "Do you want to be a seventh grader?" And I just said, "Why not?" So I became a seventh grader right there, and then I graduated uh, high school in three years. So I ended up going to college when I was 16 and a half, and uh, that worked out really well for me because I met my wife the first day of class at college and we've been together for 22 years and we have five children together. Oh, wow. And I wouldn't have met her if I didn't skip the grade or graduated high school early. So is she older than you? She is. She, she had just turned 18 when she went to college. She had a, what's it called? Late birthday. She had a late birthday. So she had just turned 18. Oh, so she's a cougar. Uh, I mean, it's only a year and a half difference. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So now you're based out in Texas. Um, and what was, you know, with all of this and your history, we've learned quite a bit. Um, but you're here to tell us about your first deal. So tell us, you know, what was that first investment property that kind of hooked you on this? And I'll leave it open to you if you want to talk about commercial or if you want to talk about your single family days. But either one. Sure. I'll uh, talk about. Two would be glad. Yeah, maybe I'll talk about both uh, if people are interested. Okay. So um, the first single family deal I did. Well, let's take one step back. So uh, I basically started investing around 2014, 15. So I mostly invested in crowdfunded deals back then. So I would log into a website online. It would. So this was when uh, President Obama passed the Jobs Act and it made, uh, I guess, offering securities a little bit easier. So a lot of uh, real estate projects got posted to things like Realty Mogul, Realty Shares, you know, Acquire Real Estate. There's a bunch of them. So most of them don't exist anymore. They've merged or they're out of existence. So people would post their syndications up there and you can invest with as little as $1,000 or $5,000. So I invested in a few of those just to check it out. But my first real deal that was physical to me that I did the whole deal was a private money loan. So... Um, after experiencing kind of investing online and then doing a lot of research on bigger pockets, you know, I listened to a ton of their podcasts and read a ton of their articles, as well as other people's websites and podcasts. Um, I kind of learned that the role that I should be is a private money lender because I had quite a lot of capital saved up from my job and my wife's job. Um, I didn't have a ton of real estate experience. 
but I was also a lawyer. So I was very familiar with loan documentation and how to perfect security interests and, uh, you know, secure uh, liens. Uh, so the first deal I did was uh, somebody I met off of Bigger Pockets. His name is Chris. I met him at Starbucks, really liked the guy. Um, you know, he had a normal job. Him and his wife had been together for a while. He had kids, just a ultimate, you know, family man, uh, very pious as well. And uh, he said, hey, you know, I really like you. I think we should do some business together. Will you lend me some money to do my next deal? And I said, okay, sir, sounds good. And then he called me a month later and he said, hey, I have what's really like a busted wholesale deal. So I'm buying this house for 100K. I'm selling it for 120K. Um, you know, I know this buyer. They're good for it. They just they just don't won't have the money to do it before my contract due date is with the seller. So ordinarily, he would have just wholesaled this deal. So he would have just made 20000 at the closing table and not had to fund anything. But because of this timing problem, he came to me and he said, hey, Ethan, can I borrow 100K to buy this house? You know, I'll pay you points and interest and it'd probably just be like a two week loan. And I said, OK, that sounds good. And uh, believe it or not, it was a two, two week loan. So I made my points. I made interest for a couple of weeks. Uh, it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was a great annualized return. And then uh, I go back to Chris and I say, uh, we need to do that again. And then he just, he just <laughs> laughed and he said, not all of them are going to be this quick or this good. And I said, that's okay. So then I ended up doing like the next 30 to 40 of Chris's deals. Uh, he did have a couple of other lenders as well, but I did the majority of them. And he and I still keep in contact to this day, but he's kind of moved on from single family fix and flipping. We actually, we actually now talk a lot more about multifamily because I'm doing a lot of multifamily and so is he. So the first multifamily deal I did uh, outside of the uh, the stuff that I did online that I described previously was an earnest money deal. So the way earnest money deals work is basically, you know, let's say you and I, in our same example, we were buying that $15 million apartment complex and we were going to borrow 10 million and we needed 1 million liquid so we could show the lender that we had our 10% and therefore we can check the boxes so that we can qualify for the loan. So let's say in that situation, you know, we were buying it early 2022 when the market was just crazy and sellers had all kinds of offers and they were just choosing the best one. So in that case, we would have to put up a large amount of earnest money and then potentially all non-refundable. So we take the risk that the deal's, you know, not going to go through or we can't raise the money or we can't get the loan. You know, that's our problem. So um, in situations like that, let's just say in that example, let's say that earnest money uh, required was uh, $700,000. So you and I have $700,000, but if we put it into the earnest money for the deal, our liquidity is now $300,000 and we will no longer check the box in order to get the loan. So in this situation, we would call somebody, you know, Ethan Gal, and say, hey, Ethan, can we borrow $700,000, please, so that we can put it into the earnest money for this deal? And then Ethan will say, maybe, show me more. And then if Ethan got comfortable, he would do it. And then in exchange, we would potentially pay Ethan some interest and points, or we would give him a portion of the general partnership entity or both. So in the case that I did, uh, it was just a general partnership position. But unfortunately, that deal didn't go through and uh, the earnest money was lost and the lead sponsor uh, reimbursed me the earnest money to, you know, within two months of loss. 
So he lost a bunch of money. Uh, I lost access to a bunch of money for a while. It was just an annoying situation. And nowadays, wow. the market has shifted. So nowadays, it's like you don't really have to put up that much earnest money or have it non-refundable anymore because now interest rates are high and sellers need to adjust their expectations downwards. Wow, but the fact that the sponsor still paid you back. That was always our happened. deal. I wouldn't have done it okay. otherwise. So so the way I yeah. so I don't do a ton of earnest money deals. I've done five of these. It's it's been a mixed bag for me. So that one was obviously a bad experience for everybody and a large amount. Yeah. The uh second one I did also was a large amount but less than that one and that one had a high, you know, that one ended up basically failing. But then a new sponsorship group took it over and they closed it. So that one also would have been looking at a loss where the lead sponsors would have had to reimburse me. So I would have been batting zero for two at that point. And I would have just said, I'm not I'm not trying the third. Like third time is not the charm. I'm out. I'm no longer doing this. But so whenever anybody asks me to do the earnest money, I basically ask them, you know, when do you need to close? When do you need the earnest money? What's your contract date? How many extensions do you have? Is it non-refundable? What circumstances can we get it back? And then, um, you know, if there is a risk of loss, I just straight up tell them, I just say, I don't really care what you think. I'm just going to assume we're going to lose this earnest money. So how are you going to pay me back, man? Um, and if they have a good answer, yeah. then I'm willing to entertain it. If they're like, oh, I don't have any way of paying you back, then I just say, pass. Oh, got it. Okay, wow. So I'm not the most so attractive I... earnest money partner. A lot of earnest money partners will truly, not a lot, there's a certain subset of earnest money partners that will take the actual risk, but they probably get a little bit more involved in the deal to make sure yeah. that they feel comfortable or they're just really, really dumb or they just have a ton of money <laughs> and they don't care. It's one of those three or a combination thereof. Otherwise, I yeah. actually think it's a crazy business to do. <laughs> to put up a lot of your uh, capital for something that yeah, for something yeah. that you're at risk for and that you don't control. Right. I mean, you know, if you right. controlled it, it's a little bit different. But if you're putting it up on behalf of someone else and you don't control it, that's an awkward situation to be in. Absolutely. Okay. So, how did you transition? Like, you know, so you it, you started off with these online like websites when that was more of a thing. Because back then, yeah, you didn't need as much money. And now it's like the minimum for most of these deals is like 25K, right? Like to find anything less than that is impossible. That's absolutely correct. Um, most of those. So I can just tell you from my own anecdotal experience of investing in those deals. So there was a couple of websites. Yeah. I basically just put in 5,000 on each deal. So like I had like 50 wow. deals with them. A lot oh of them turned gosh. up pretty bad. I mean, oh. so this was during a time period when money was easy to get. And then if you just threw up yeah. anything, um, some of these were really terrible. Like a lot of these were hard money loans where we took principal uh -huh. losses, which is just really, really unfortunate and really unlikely absent of fraud or something. I've, you know, I've done 300 hard money loans here in Houston, Texas, my home market. Yeah. I'm, I'm not lost money on a single one of them. If you're lending 70% of the value of the property, even the after repaired value of the property, um, and the market hasn't just completely taken a crap, uh, there's really no reason that you should be taking large principal losses on your loans. You should be able to get that property back and then sell it for close to your loan amount, if not more. So there was all kinds of shenanigans going on and no underwriting being done by these, um, by these uh, online websites and portals. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. And now it's like super regulated, right? So you have to have, um, you know, several interactions with someone. And, and it makes sense. Like, because of it used to be the wild, wild west, the government had to get involved and say, hey, you guys can't do this stuff anymore. Like, they're, you know, it's not acceptable. Um, which is fair. That's their job. That's why we hire them to represent us. Um, so with that being said, what would you say is a piece of advice that you would give to yourself if you could go back in time or, you know, to someone that's looking to get into this business? Like what's, you know, cause you still work your W2 job. And I think sometimes there's this misconception that you have to quit your job in order to get involved in real estate. And it sounds like you still continue to practice law, right? As you were dabbling in investing. Yeah, that's um, absolutely so right. That's absolutely right. Although, to be fair, the job that I have, I basically, I'm the owner of the law firm. I'm the only employee and I'm the only lawyer. So it's basically oh. me working for myself. I'm also an active financial advisor. I belong to a registered investment advisor. We do um, investments, uh, personal financial planning, as well as life and disability insurance. So I, I do that as well. I have a lot of mm -hmm. uh, attorney doctor, engineer, and uh, real estate clients, uh, especially on the life insurance side. Uh, like I said, mm -hmm. I keep most of my liquidity in life insurance policies. I don't usually like having it in stocks or at the bank. But there's two pieces yeah. of advice I would give people. The first one is it's and, and these may sound obvious as you think about it, but nobody ever mm -hmm. really tells it to you directly. So the first piece of advice I would say is sometimes the best deal that you do is is no deal. Yeah. So I've invested in crappy deals before and I've lost money in crappy deals. And then I quite honestly just wish I never met that guy or never even considered that deal. I would have had my money and I would have had my time back. So don't be a deal junkie where you, every deal just sounds great or your brother-in-law's friend says, hey, I'm really smart and good looking like this deal is awesome. Uh, sometimes they're not that smart or that good looking. Yeah. So that's number one. Number two, and this kind of comes through my financial advisory practice where I have some of these doctor, lawyer, engineer, engineering um, clients who you know make really good salaries and bonuses and have good career credentials at their W-2 jobs. Um, mm -hmm. And I noticed this in particular with doctors. So they will get into lots of crappy deals for some reason, and then they end up spending a lot of time and effort because they do invest in their brother-in-law's best friend's deal because they thought the guy was really smart and really good looking and didn't check anything. <laughs> and um, I think for those people, usually their better choice that they could make, you know, in your choose your own adventure book, I actually yeah. think the best choice for them to make is to be extraordinarily good at their jobs and get a better <laughs> job or make more money at their job or get promoted at their job. And then outsourcing the investments to an expert or somebody that does it full time. Like oh. instead of having your brother-in-law's best friends all come to you to pitch you random deals, uh, forget all of that. Just hire a guy to vet the deals for you or to find the deals yeah. or find a private equity fund that you really like the managers. You know, the managers have put in a lot of money or they're very good at what they do. They got a long track record. Just invest your money in that and that'll end up, you will end up being wealthier doing that. Yeah. And I think that's a really great point is that people assume people that already have a job that they really like and enjoy 
and they're like, oh man, I want to, they have the privilege, right, to say, oh, I want to invest my money and make it grow so that I can provide more opportunities for my kids, family, whatever the case may be. And then they assume that they have to do everything themselves. And like, if you look at the forums or in Google, right, like bigger pockets, there's always like, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm an attorney, like I want to buy my first investment property. It's like, why do you want to do that to yourself and create yourself a second job? Um, where, and I really appreciate that you say that and bring that up because if you can afford to hire someone to kind of do the legwork of, you know, making sure that this is reliable, this is a good opportunity, then why not? Um, it's a better investment of your time and your money. All that being said, so if the 402 wants to learn more about you, they want to chat you up and, you know, get to know Ethan a little bit better, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you and get connected? Uh, just email me at Ethan Gao, which is my name, E-T-H-A-N-G-A-O at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. I think uh, the one that, uh, uh, if you look at the guy that was a lawyer and went to Cornell and Columbia Law School, that's me. I think the last thing I wrote on there is I'm a co-manager of a private equity fund called Good Bull Investments. Awesome. So there you have it, 402. And that is all, folks. 402. Did you learn something or take away a golden nugget? Then I'd love it if you would share this episode with a friend. And I'd really also like to talk to you about real estate on Instagram or LinkedIn. So follow me at First Deal Show. If you know someone that has an amazing first deal story or you just want to give us the dirt on your first deal shoot me an email at firstdealshow at gmail.com and let's get you on the show 402 thank you so much for listening i love all of you and i will see you next friday